for your word. We thank you that you are a God who does speak, and a God who uh, gives us commands, and a God who makes promises. Our Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, uh, we would hear your voice, that we would uh, hear your command, and that we would appreciate your promises. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to uh, back to Genesis chapter 11 and 12. We're on page uh, 10. And on the inside of one of your handouts, there is an outline of where we're going in the sermon. Uh, if you find that and have that in front of you, that might be helpful. Uh, there are some blanks on it. That's for Smack 2, so in case they fall asleep. Uh, but I'm afraid you've got the same outline. So if you want some pens or something like that, or a pencil, then uh, Lee's just coming around with pencils. Anyone want a pencil to, to fill that in? Just uh, let him know. All right. Promises. Promises are an integral part of our lives, aren't they? Uh, we live with them every day. Those of us who are married, we got married by making promises to each other. And we live them out day by day, for better or for worse. Whenever we sign a legal contract, we promise to honour whatever we sign. And when we buy a new electrical item, then we get a promise that it will work at least for one year. Promises are an integral part of life. And breaking a promise is a serious thing. If we tell our children to do something and we fail to deliver, expect the response, but you promised. They're disappointed in us, and rightly so. If we fail to honor a contract, we, we can get sued in court. If we break a promise to a friend, then our friendship is on the line. In our passage this week, God makes some big promises to Abraham, or Abram, as he was known at that stage. The promises to Abram are found there at the beginning of Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is a great turning point in the story of the Bible. This is when God finally acts, or begins to act, to bring about a process of restoration. And by calling this one man and making him these really, really big promises. But in order to understand this, we need to see it in its context. Let me just remind you what God has given us in Genesis 1-11, to which we looked at last week. There we saw the one true God created the heavens and the earth. We saw how he blessed humankind and made us rulers of the world under him. We also saw how, as a, as a human race, we rejected the rulership of our creator, opting instead for rebellion and our own autonomy. And we see how God, we saw how God put the world under a curse as a result. And yet in the midst of that, God was kind to us. He gave us hope that, that one day the curse would be broken. One day it will be lifted. One day our relationship to Him will be restored. 
But as time went on, humankind became more and more wicked. God judged the world in the days of Noah. But in the midst of that judgment, he rescued his people. God started all over again with Noah, the most righteous man around, and corruption set in straight away. Because it came not from society, but from the wickedness of the human heart. And it was ultimately demonstrated in Babel, where people united to build a city with a tower to make their name great and avoid being scattered as God had said they would be. But God foiled their plans. He scattered them in punishment. And so by the, begin, by the middle of Genesis 11, things are looking really bleak. There is no indication of anyone who follows God. Humans live in frustration and alienation from each other in their rebellion against God. And there was judgment with no sign of salvation. Now, we'd already had a genealogy from each of Noah's sons, including his son Shem in chapter 10. But in verses 10 to 26 of chapter 11, we are given another genealogy that traces a line from Shem in verse 10 all the way down to a man named Terah in verse 26. And it's Terah's family that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks as we read Genesis 12 to 25. In fact, the whole heading for our section in the next few weeks is verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. This is the story of of Terah's family. Uh, Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran died young, but he had a son called Lot, whom we'll meet again in a few weeks, and we'll, meet Nahor, we'll see Nahor's name again in a few weeks as well. But the main character in the family that the narrative focuses on is Abram. Abram's wife was Sarai, and verse 30 of chapter 11 tells us that Sarai was barren. So we have the genealogy from Noah all the way down to Abram, but this is where it stops. His wife has no child. Terah's family lived in about 2000 BC. They were idol worshippers who, who stayed in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is now part of Iraq. But for reasons we will see in a moment, they moved. Terah, Abram, and Lot and their families went together out of the country towards the land of Canaan, which is the name of the part of the world we now call Palestine or Israel. Now, as you can see from the, from the, uh, the maps, if we go to Ur of the Chaldeans, if you want to go the closest way, it would be go to straight across, uh, to, to straight across eastwards, no, westwards, um, towards, towards the land of Israel. But the problem is that's all desert there. Right? So in order to actually get there, you've got to follow the river. Follow the river Euphrates. Ah, oh, that's a very good pointer, thank you. You can follow the river Euphrates up, all right, that's called the Fertile Crescent, and then you come down again. Uh, that's, well, that's how they, uh, they, uh, they go. So, Terah's family went, they left Ur, but they didn't make it to Canaan. They settled halfway in a place called Haran, up north. And there they prospered. But that wasn't the place where God had wanted them to be. God had not wanted them in a halfway house between Ur of the Chaldeans and Canaan. As long as they were just halfway, 
they weren't in the place where God wanted them. You see, while they were still in Ur of the Chaldeans, God had spoken to Abram. And verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12 flash back to that call. Verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said, or had said, to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These three verses are among the most important verses in the whole Bible. This is where it starts. This is where God's story of how he's going to save the world begins. Salvation. This is where the salvation program starts. The salvation program that, that, that we're still part of today. I want us to notice a few things from there. First of all, God took the initiative in calling Abraham. God was the one who took the initiative here. It wasn't like Abram was this great, holy man that spent days and weeks and months fasting under a boa tree in order to hear God and, and receive his revelation. Right? No, no. God speaks to Abram. God chose Abram in love uh, for his own reasons, for his own purpose. It was God's initiative. Secondly, notice what God did when he took the initiative. God spoke to Abram. Last week when we looked at creation, we saw God spoke and things were created. And once again, God speaks. He begins the process of salvation. And God's word is the means by which he accomplishes his purpose. He speaks. And thirdly, notice God's word was simultaneously a word of demand and a word of gracious promise. A word of demand and a word of gracious promise. God told Abram to do something. Now, he was going to be the boss. He was going to rule Abraham by his word, as he had done in, in, in Eden. He, sa- he says, go from your country. Go to the land I will show you. He doesn't say, uh, Abram, I want you to think about considering the possibility of migration. Why doesn't do it. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. But God's word is meant to be obeyed. God rules by his word. It's a, it's a demanding thing. And yet at the same time, the word is a word of promise. There are great promises here in this passage. One of the greatest promises in the Bible. They are gracious promises. They, they spring from God's grace. That is God, God, God's grace is God, God treating people far better than, than we ever could deserve. There's no suggestion that Abram was better than anyone else in Ur at the time when God called him. Abram didn't do anything to earn or deserve his, uh, these promises. God, God, God just gave it to them anyway. Uh, Janice? Janice? Is someone? Uh, can you go? Yeah. Thanks. God just gave it to him. Anyway. Look at me. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. Thanks. God just gave it to him anyway. God chose to be gracious to him. 
This is God's kindness to Abraham, not Abraham earning or deserving it. Finally, I want us to notice that the promises that God's word were promises that demanded a response of faith. You see, Abram had to decide whether to obey God or not. Abram had to decide whether to believe God or not. If Abram believed God's promises, he would head towards the promised land. If he didn't believe God, well, then staying where he was would have been far more convenient, wouldn't it? Now, Abram delayed. He was caught up with the rest of his family in the halfway place. It would have been much easier to stay there. After all, he was doing pretty well in Haran, wasn't he? Thank you very much. But now, in response to that earlier call, the age of 75... Abram packs his bags to leave Haran in faith and therefore obedience to God's word. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He might have been heading in the general direction of Canaan, but he didn't really know the place he was going to. Didn't know what it would be like. Didn't know what he would find there. But he went in faith, in obedience to God's word. And friends, God still speaks to us by his word today. He calls people in the gospel. And in the gospel he speaks to us a word that is both demanding and gracious. He demands that we leave our old lives of sin and follow Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, I'd like you to consider the possibility of changing your religion. He doesn't say, what do you think about having me as Lord? Jesus says, follow me. Drop everything, follow me. And he promises graciously eternal life in his kingdom, something that we could, we could never earn or deserve. In the gospel, we have a word of demand and a word of gracious promise. Like Abram, when, when he set out from, from, uh, from Haran, we don't know what the new heaven and earth will be like. We don't really know what it will be like to, to live in eternity with God. We don't know what to expect when we get there. But we know it is a place of promise. And we look forward to it in hope. And like with Abram, God takes the initiative in calling us to himself. If we belong to God, it's not because we've been so holy or good that God's place is in his kingdom. It's because, because of God's kindness to us, the undeserving. The gospel was God's initiative. And yet the word of God demands a response of faith. If we trust Jesus, we will make radical decisions in obedience to him. We will follow him and obey him whatever it costs. But if we don't trust Jesus, we will not leave our lives, our souls, our futures, our eternities in his hands. We will not be prepared to risk losing everything for him if we don't believe his promises. Maybe the halfway house might be easier. So God's call to Abram is a bit like his call to us.
You must trust him as Abram did. Believe his promises. Do what he says. In fact, the promises God makes to us in the gospel are actually the same promises that God made to Abram. Let me explain a little bit more by, by uh, looking at the promises God made to Abram. There are three big promises that God makes here. The first promise was that God would make Abram into a great nation, a numerous people. Now look at verse 2 again. And I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Just going to move back a little bit so I can see everybody. Right. Numerous people. See, God promised to give Abram many descendants. And his descendants would become a great nation. God was going to re-establish human society. In contrast to the rebels of Babel, God was going to do it on a proper basis, on the basis of his promises. And so in the process, God was going to make Abram's name great. Remember last week we looked looked at Babel, that's what the sinners in Babel were trying to do for themselves. They were trying to make their name great. And now God is saying, no, I'm going to make your name great. Make you a great nation. This promise would be fulfilled, wouldn't it? In the ancient nation of Israel. The people would be numerous. The nation great. So much so, in Solomon's time, in 1 Kings 8, we see that they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Great empire. But that was just one step in God's plan of renewing society. It was a step that would lead next to the establishment of a community of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Because the New Testament tells us that those who have Abraham's faith are his true descendants. We are what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 calls a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The promise to Abraham was a step in the direction of the ultimate human society. The worshipping community of heaven with all God's people, those of the faith of Abraham, gathered around his throne forever. A, number, a, a, a gathering so large that no one can number. But at this stage, we're still dealing with the first step. God would bless Abraham, give him many descendants, and they would be God's people. Another thing God promised Abram was a place for his people to live. Look again at verses, uh, or look with me at verses 5 to 7. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. The land that God had promised Abram for his people was the land of Canaan. 
Well, we'll read later that God didn't give it to him at the time because it wouldn't have been fair to the Canaanites. Their sin had not yet got to the point that it was so bad that they deserved to be kicked out. But here in Genesis 12, God promises the land to Abram's offspring, the great nation that he said he was going to raise up from him. Remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in which God placed them. And now here God is beginning to reverse that loss by giving Abram a land. In the Babel story, humans found a plain and settled there. Here God gives a place to Abram and his descendants. It was God's place that he would give them. The place where a life of blessing could be enjoyed. And Abram walked through it, we read, from the north to the south, symbolically taking possession of it. Taking a route that would eventually be followed by his descendants when they would actually come in and conquer the place. He lived in it. He built altars in it. He worshipped in it. But it wasn't his. He was there, but the possession was not yet. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament tells us that the land of Canaan that God promised to Abram was a shadow of the ultimate place that God is providing for his people. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abram and people like him were in fact actually longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And it goes on to talk about Abram and his, his family, and he says in verse 16, But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, God would indeed give the land of Canaan, the physical land of Canaan, to Abram and his descendants. 500 years later, the descendants of Abram, the people of Israel, would return there and inherit the land. It would be a place of blessing. But the ultimate place of blessing would ultimately be in, in God's new city, the new heaven and new earth, the home of the righteous. That is a place where Abraham really looked forward to. And that is a place that we look forward to. That is a place where we will be God's people under God's blessing forever. Back in the Old Testament, the, the concrete expression of that, the physical foreshadowing of the heavenly reality was, was the land of Israel, the land God promised to Abraham. But the reality is found in the new creation. From our vantage point in history, the reality that we look forward to, and that Abram himself will come to share, is yet to come. So in a sense, we are like Abram in this passage, aren't we? There's Abram in the land, there, but not yet. And in a sense, we are there, and not yet. Spiritually, Ephesians 2 says, as we are saying just now, we have been raised up with Christ in heaven, but... We're not really there yet. We wait for the day when God's promises will be fulfilled and we stand in, in God's presence, in His place, with all God's people forever. So, we've got God promising Abraham a people, 
and a place. The third and most prominent of the promises is a promise of blessing. Now, if God blesses someone, it means that he shows them favour, that he's good to them. Notice how many times the word bless comes out in verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's meant to remind us of the way God blessed humankind in Genesis 1. And then we're meant to remember about the curse in Genesis 3 that fell because of human disobedience. In fact, the word curse is found five times in Genesis 1 to 11, and now we find the word blessing five times in these three verses of promise. God is promising to bless again. Once again, he will look favorably upon people and give them good things. Once again, he will look, in, in, in particular, he's going to look, look favorably upon Abram and the nation that will come out of him. So his descendants, his offspring, will be God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing. And we see that in the history of ancient Israel. God blessed them when they obeyed him. And so by the time we get to Solomon's time, a thousand years after Abraham, we see the height of that blessing. An incredible, incredibly great and prosperous nation. Ruled by a wise king. With God dwelling among them in his temple. A blessed nation indeed. But there's another thing that God promises Abraham here. It involves both blessing and curse for people all over the world. Begin at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, or even can be translated, who takes you lightly, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every people group, every tribe, and language and nation all over the world will have blessing through Abram. Isn't that amazing? See, this is not just about Abram and his descendants. Abram would be God's way of reversing the curse under which humankind had fallen. All the nations will be blessed. But which individuals from those tribes and languages and peoples and nations will be blessed depends on their attitude to Abram and his offspring. I will bless those who bless you and he who dishonors you I will curse. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? That blessing on a worldwide scale, with the ultimate reversal of the fall, yet not for everyone. How God would bring about that blessing remained a mystery at this stage. It was slightly fulfilled in Israel's history. I mean, in the time of Solomon, people came from around the world to hear his wisdom. People like the Queen of Sheba. So it's kind of like a blessing, but really it's actually ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the son of Abram. 
He is the one through whom the blessing of Abram comes to the whole world. And so the New Testament sees him as the fulfillment of this promise. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, writes in the book of Galatians. And Scripture, Galatians 3.8, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That is, when God made these promises to Abraham, that the nations will be blessed through him, he was intending to fulfill it through Jesus Christ. He was intending that the Gentiles, people from all the nations, would receive the, the blessing of justification, of, of being declared right with God by faith in Jesus. So that those who have faith in Christ from every family of the earth would receive the blessing of Abraham. And Paul goes on to explain how in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hey friends, Genesis 1-11 showed us so clearly that sin leads to curse. Every time the word of God is disobeyed, it brings a curse. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died to take our sins and our punishment, and so he took the curse that we deserve. And now that he has taken the curse for us, we can receive God's ultimate blessing. So that those who believe in him, who trust in him, who exercise faith in him, are given the blessing of Abraham. Those who reject him, who dishonor him, who take him lightly, miss out. They are cursed. And through Jesus, people from all over the world are being blessed. And he is building his kingdom with people from every tribe and language and nation. So what have we seen about God's promises? God's promises to Abram are partly fulfilled in ancient Israel. God promised to many descendants who formed the nation of Israel, God's people. God promised them the land of Canaan where they could live as God's people. God's place. And he blessed them. And in a limited way made them a blessing to others. But the promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus are Abram's true descendants, God's people. We have a land that God has promised. The new heaven and new earth, God's place. And the blessing of Abram is going out to all the world. As people from every tribe and nation put their trust in Jesus. And receive forgiveness and eternal life. God's blessing. You see what I mean now when I say that God's promises to us are the same promises that he made to Abraham. It's like, it's like God promised Abraham his descendants a toy Ferrari. right? And God gave it to them but it la and it lasted for a while but the real fulfillment 
what, what, what God did in Jesus and now promises to us, that, that, that is a real thing. A big red Ferrari that goes really fast. It's the same thing. Just far superior and ultimately more satisfying. Friends, God still calls people and he still makes the same promises today. Not in exactly the same way as he called Abraham, not dealing with toy Ferraris anymore. Don't expect that God will move us to a new country and give us promises of land and people and blessing. That, that part of his plan's complete. Not like Abraham. But on the other hand, we are very much like Abraham. Because the gospel that was preached to Abram beforehand is the gospel that God uses to call people now. We're in a far more privileged position than Abram because we, we see the gospel of Jesus far more clearly. We don't just have the promise of a model, we've got the promise of the Ferrari itself. And we've even met the one who made it by hand. God still calls people today and makes them these promises. He calls people to leave behind familiar things. To leave behind ways of life that have become so entrenched to give it up and follow Jesus. For Abram, that meant moving to a new country. And through the proclamation of the gospel, he calls us to leave the world behind and follow him to a new one. Not to a halfway place, but to his place. What that looks like for each of us might be different. For some it might literally involve moving to a new country or getting a new job. Or for some it might involve losing our friends and family. Some involve, it might involve how we rethinking how we spend our time. Some might involve repenting of particular sins and turning away from them. But for all of us it means having a new master. It means listening. Obeying God's word. It means becoming one of God's people instead of one of the people of the world. It means inheriting the promise of a new home, a new promised land, new heavens, a new earth, where we'll be with Him forever. Abram heard God's word and responded in faith. He trusted God and therefore he did what he said. And so Abram became the paradigm for all who will trust God and therefore obey his word. God spoke the gospel to Abram in advance. And he speaks his gospel word to us now. God says, go to the land I will show you. Head for heaven. You don't know what it's going to look like, but it's okay because I'm with you. You may have to give up things that make you feel secure. That's okay, because I'm with you. Head for heaven. And you know how to get there? By trusting in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, then the promise to Abram is yours. You are one of God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule already, and one day, you will be one of God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule, in the new creation forever. 
And that is better than anything or indeed everything that this world can offer. Nothing compares to the promise you have in Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for preaching the gospel to Abram beforehand. We thank you that you gave him your word. We thank you that he had the faith to believe you and obeyed you. We thank you for the great and precious promises that you made to him. We thank you for the great and precious promises that you have given us in Christ. We thank you that those who trust in him, like Abraham, will have forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you that you have made us your people. That you are taking us to your place. That you have placed us under your blessing and rule. My Heavenly Father, we pray that like Abram, we would be people who trust your promises and therefore do what you say. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.